more time, good morning. I want to say good morning to all of you who are here. We also have people watching on our live stream, which is great. Um, on that note, we do record uh, podcasts and videos of all of our messages. And part of the reason for that is, uh, um, well, main reason really is um, we want to have it available for people who cannot be here on Sunday mornings. Uh, and some people just can't be because of work or whatever. And because, well, it's sunny and there's dry rock out there who, you know, I mean, just go figure, right? Uh, but then you can catch up. You can listen to the podcast or watch the video before attending missional community group during the week. So as you've seen from the screen we have up here, we're in a series in First Timothy. I believe this is the fourth week. I believe so. Open your Bibles if you have one. And if you don't, we have some at the back. You can open one on your phone or on a tablet. It would be a good idea. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. And this is our pattern here at the church. Uh, it's a good pattern that we go through books of the Bible verse by verse, week after week. One of the issues with that kind of pattern is, is there are texts that you cannot avoid. <laughs> right? Today would be one of those texts. So it, it was really awesome last week uh, to be, uh, actually we were over on Saratoga Beach, Janice and I, at a cabin that we get for a couple of weeks a year. And it was a working getaway, for me anyway, because I'm preparing for today and for tonight. Uh, but it was interesting. Last week, Joey uh, did the first seven verses, I believe, in chapter two. We watched the live stream uh, with the beach and the rolling ocean in behind us. I'm sorry, but that's what it was like. It was great. Afterwards, uh, and I'm relating this to you for a good reason, I hope, uh, Janice and I got in the car and drove over to a little town called Cumberland. And if you've not been over to Courtney Comox area in the North Island, awesome little community, smaller town than Squamish. But I, I got to tell you, when you're there, you feel like you're in Squamish. There are so many young men and women who have moved there. Why? Because of mountain biking and because of, well, it's funky, it's cool, it's like Squamish, and they're everywhere. So we went to the Sunday market, uh, which is, of course, what Janice loves, and I, I kind of quickly go through the booths and go, okay, I've had enough of this. But, you know, she was having a really good time, and then this thing happened to me because I listened to Joey, and, and this is, you know, it's one of the blessings and the burdens of being a preacher is that it, it, it doesn't leave you. Right? And so here I am on this Sunday morning in this beautiful sunny place before the storm came, and I'm watching this marketplace. It's, it's just a buzz, and all these young families and all these people, and I had this crazy thought. It was insane. Trust me, I didn't do it, but I thought, what if I had a soapbox, you know, one of those things that people get up and yell at people, and I put it in the middle of the small little congregation area of all the booths, and I just got up on that morning and read this text. Well, I would have been glad that all the tomatoes were already purchased. I want you to keep that in your mind. I want you to keep that in your mind as we read this text. So let's read, and then I'm going to pray. Paul writes, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 2, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We need to pray. 
Yes, uh, gracious Heavenly Father, really, um, Lord, I'm glad to, I am very grateful that, yes, um, we, we can smile, we can, we can be aware that th- this is uh, in our world and culture today, but even in the church in many places, this is, these are challenging words. Um, so, Lord, I, I'm really grateful. Um, I, I think we're all really grateful that your word is good. Everything that is written in your word is true and it's good and it's for our good. So, Holy Spirit, you are the one who inspired Paul to write these words to Timothy, this young pastor in Ephesus, uh, so that he could lead this church well. Holy Spirit, I ask that today you would show us what the meaning of this text is in the simple reading of the text. And I pray that all other distractions and all other things that we might bring to the table here, men and women here today, yes, would be put aside so that we can hear directly from you. I pray these things in your worthy name, Jesus. Amen. So uh, sort of a side note, but I was recently uh, recalling our first membership class at the Rock Church that happened um, in 2010, November 2010, one year after we'd launched the Rock Church. We had a membership class at the upstairs near the curling part of the, the golf club, and we, had, uh, we, had, we were barely, barely a year old as a church, and I think we had 64 adults show up for the membership class, which was really encouraging. Uh, it was virtually most of the people who had decided to join the Rock Church at that time. I taught the class, which is, trust me, it's not a devotional. It was a good hour and a half of teaching about who we are, what we believe as a church. And if you're going to join this church, this is what we believe. This is how we feel the church has been organized by God, the order, et cetera, et cetera. These are the things that we're casting vision for, et cetera. It was awesome. Trust me, there were some questions afterwards. But the most notable thing that I, I remember from that night was, because of, not just because of the questions, but it was, it was incredible. We, we, had, we had, and this is one of the blessings, and I might mention this tonight, of being a, a church planter, but also a burden, is you get these people who come and they're thinking they want to be part of this new church that has this new vision or whatever it might be for Squamish or wherever, and they are from very, very diverse backgrounds. Right? I mean, we had, and I went through it in my mind this week, we had several Mennonite Brethren people, which is our denomination, which is MB for short, and I tell people that mostly stands for mostly Baptist. We also had several Baptists there, several Baptists who joined our church, plus Presbyterians, Reformed Presbyterians, because there's two different groups there, right? We had Christian Reformed Alliance, Pentecostals, of course we, had, we did. We had Catholics, or Catholics evangelically anyway, who would become Christians, like myself, who joined the church, Salvation Army, Anglican, Assemblies of God, and I'm sure there were others who just didn't want to let us know where they were from. It was interesting. A, a really, really diverse group. And so I've got to tell you, for the first two or three years, actually to this day, my job, our job as a church, was to try to get all of these people on the same page. And hopefully to want to be in the same church together. That's a challenge. It was a challenge. It's gone reasonably well. Now, if if you think that was challenging, the reason why I highlight that, because it was, and it is, uh, consider what Timothy and virtually every other church planter pastor was doing in A.D. 60th. 60th, I think I have that. Uh, they, They were basically planting a brand new religion. They didn't have the benefit of this. 
the closed canon of the scripture, or 17, 18, 1900 years of liturgy, and, and this is how the church is organized, and this is how we do it here, there, or wherever, and, and, and seeing some good in that and some not so good. They didn't have that. So this was a faith in those days, in AD 60, that was birthed in and about a Jewish rabbi whose own people rejected him, one that was more exclusive than even the Jewish faith that he came into and existed in that day and was looking for the Messiah, but especially so from the pagan, Gentile, Greco-Roman world with its pantheon of gods. And so we know, we know, we've been over this before, Paul wrote this letter, wrote the pastoral epistles and most of the letters for that matter, to Timothy because Timothy had written letters to him saying, help, Paul, and some good news, but mostly it was about help. This is what's going on here. Give me some direction. You're the apostle. You're the guy who actually planted this church. You put me here. You left me here. Give me some help. And so, yeah, I mentioned liturgy. I mean, that's simply, we have a liturgy here at the Rock Church. It's simply the way we organize the order of service at a church. Now, most of the churches in that day knew at least that Acts 2.42 said on the day that the church was birthed, they continued in what? The apostles' teaching the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayers. And so right there, you have a, a good four-part liturgy for a church, which they were observing, but other things were going on. Other questions were coming up to Timothy and the elders. So Timothy's got in that church, just imagine this, he's got Jewish believers who, who've actually come to believe, at least most, that Jesus is the Messiah. That's a miracle, actually, after what had happened mixed in with previously Gentile pagans, uh, every nation and tongue and tribe, as well as every co- uh, that was birthed in a very cosmopolitan port. I mentioned this uh, in the first message, and I haven't done it yet, but I, I'm going to put up sometime in this series, probably closer to the end, a picture of Ephesus, because Janice and I went there, which is in the modern-day Turkey, which is now in ruins. But, and, and, and actually, the, 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 the ocean has moved back probably three or four kilometers from where it was, but you can see where it was. And so it was, a, it was a port. It was a very popular and cosmopolitan area. And he's got all these people in his church. And listen, he's got women. And you're going, right? Yeah, he's got women in the church, lots of women. So what's new and different about women in the church is that their place in the church and roles, if any, were yet to be defined. They were yet to be defined. Certainly not like they were in Judaism or secular Roman culture, which was basically women had no roles. Uh, Women were barely welcome in the Jewish culture in that day, and especially in the Greco-Roman culture of that day. So Timothy also knew this, though, full well. I mean, he'd seen it. He'd heard it from Paul that, that women were uh, an ab- absolutely integral part of Jesus' ministry, that Je- Jesus spent a lot of time discipling women, which Jew- Jewish rabbis did not do, Welp- welcoming Mary and Martha. Well, one of them, he's saying, look, leave the looking at, come sit at my feet. Jewish rabbis didn't do that. And so they knew that Jesus had done that. They also know that Paul had written that women are co-heirs with Christ with men. So they knew that, but there's still, for whatever reasons, there's some challenges there. So I I feel for Timothy here. He's got a difficult job in that church, in that place. 
I mean, we've had our challenges, but like I said, we, we've, we've got some history, we've got the full canon of Scripture, we can read this letter today, and we can hopefully understand it well, but Timothy's getting it for the first time from Paul. So, so again, if you look back to the first verse in chapter 2, which uh, Joey read for us last week, Paul writes, first of all then, right? Now, those words are important because it's at this point that Paul's now moving to the answering part of the letter. He's saying, okay, here's how it's done in the church. This is clearly the beginning also of a detailed response to Timothy that he'd ask him for. So we can imagine his question was simply this. So Paul, considering all the background of this diverse group of men and women, how should we best gather and behave in the church? And Paul rightfully says, well, first, pray. Pray. So before we examine the text, we're going to go into it in just a second. For this morning, let me acknowledge the most obvious question that we must deal with, and it is this. Honestly. (laughs) Honestly. Is there, in the world culture and even in the church today, a more contentious subject than the one we read here? especially the one we're going to read in verses 11 and 12. Is there? I I don't think so. I mean, I've only seen it in the last 50 50 to 60 years become even more contentious, and even including in the church. So what generally happens in sermons like this is that the preacher uh, spends a great deal of time showing how these verses could be interpreted by those people who would prefer to read these verses to say that, yes, of course, men and women are equal in the eyes of God, in value and worth in the eyes of God, and that there are no role distinctions, even in the church, between men and women. And so a lot of preachers will go through that, and then what they'll do is, because they've done that, they'll have to spend time either showing that those opinions or those beliefs are false, And then, of course, presenting what they believe is the true presentation of the word. And so here's what I want to suggest to you today before we dive in. We're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I've tried that in the past. It doesn't really go over well. (laughs) Here's what I want to ask you to do and what I'm hoping to do with you. Let's take the text at face value. Let's allow the text to inform us rather than bringing any other filters or ideas or to the text. I'm sure that'll be challenging. And here's the point. I feel like if we just focus on those contentious issues, we'll miss some of the really, really important and good things that are in this text. So let's begin. In verse 8, Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So like I've already mentioned, one of the problems or things that could happen is if we just jump to verses 11 and 12, and, and this is why that, well, no, and the, yeah, well, we would maybe miss the fact that Paul actually addresses the men first, and in equally a direct way, as he's going to direct his attention towards the women in the church. And again, remember, this letter comes to the church, and Timothy's going, hey, I'm just the messenger, <laughs> let me read this to you. And so men and women are hearing these. And so he addresses the men first. And so we, we saw that in 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he encourages what are called the prayers. And I love that because, again, in Acts 2.42, it's not about, oh, and also pray. No, it's about the prayers. And so in other words, at the gathering of the church on a Sunday, there should be lots of praying. 
And so Joey highlighted that for us last week, that this, this is a plural form of prayer, and it's in the form of supplications, uh, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all people to be made as part of the gathering of the church, and I'm going to add, by all people. So men and women should be praying in the church. But now, Paul moves on to some specifics, and he, fo- he focuses on the, the men first. Now, some of us will just fly by this because we want to get to those other important verses, but this is important. Why is he doing this? Why is he focusing on the men first? Well, look at the words he says. He emphasizes that in every gathering, the men pray? No, the men should pray. The men should pray. So I wonder if maybe Paul had written to Timothy and said, Paul, can you give me some advice on how to get the men involved? Now, if there were other pastors in the room, I think there are. Uh, I mean, if, and I could ask BK at 99 and Dave Corrente, uh, pardon me, Dave Corrente at 99 and BK at Squamish Baptist. Uh, do, do you have a problem very often getting men to step up and get involved? This is what they would do. So I wonder, is, uh, we don't know, but is that a question that is possible that he's asking him? Some of you might find this odd, but sometimes when we're in a missional community group or even in prayer upstairs after, before the service, I, I, I've actually said to Janice, and some of you think this is terrible, Glenn, you should never have done this, but I ask her uh, not to be the first one to pray. Because it, if you've been in a prayer with my wife, she's, she prays beautifully. I love to hear Janice pray. But it's kind of like, like dead air in radio. If, if there's nobody stepping up to pray for like 15 to 20 seconds, I know Janice is going to pray. That's a good thing. I believe Paul is trying to encourage the men here. First of all, you should pray. Guys, you should be praying. Equally as much as the women. Then look, Paul adds these interesting words. Lifting up holy hands. Now, I know there are some charismatics in our mix. Uh, and some of them are like, yes, hands up during worship. Right? That, that is true. That's a good thing. That's okay. At the Rock Church, that's okay. We'll let you come back next Sunday. Um, not saying that you should, but it's, it's a good thing. So what is this actually speaking about? Well, it, it, it's speaking about lifting up holy hands. So in that day and, and age, in that culture, one of the things it would mean is clean hands. Now, some would say, well, that means clean hands because most of them were agrarian. And of course, they're, before they go to church, they're supposed to wash their hands right? and their feet. Okay, it's possible, but that's, that's not the main point. No, the main point is, is that they should be coming to church clean as much as possible spiritually. So it's clean hands without sin. It's a posture thing. It's an approach. The next thing he adds is, again, very interesting, without anger or quarreling. <laughs> So, so, yeah, obviously it's a good idea that when men come to church, they're not standing in the foyer or standing in the church having a, an argument. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good thing. But, again, what's that all about? Well, I think also it's about this. It's about, you know, being in a church service and lifting your hands up and praising God or being seen to be praising God in whatever way and having a brother or a sister across the aisle looking out over you and go, hold on. I remember last week when we were in the marketplace and so-and-so, that guy was getting into a real theological or political or whatever argument, a quarrel with another person. It's a bit hypocritical, right? 
And so Paul is focusing initially on the men and saying, guys, when you come to the gathering of the church, well, throughout the week for that matter, consider having holy hands and consider coming to the worship service of the Lord God ready to worship him, ready to be seen, to be first to pray, ready to be seen lifting holy hands. So finally on the men here, I will add this, that that Paul is encouraging them to lead. I believe he's encouraging them actually to lead, and that includes in the church. You may ask, "Well, well, why would you say that? I don't see that in these seven verses. Good observation. But what I will say is this, if you know this, and I'm sure many of you do, our Bibles don't have chapters and verses in them. Our Bibles don't have titles over sections that say this, this, or whatever. The very next verse after we finish today is this in chapter 3, verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he, we'll get into this next week, desires a noble task. And so this is, of course, Paul's teaching on the qualifications of a spiritual leader in the church, an elder who is to be a man. And so this is geared towards, I believe, Paul starting to say, man, you need to to be holy and righteous men. You need to be men who walk the talk. You need to be men who are seen to be leading out in the church. As we'll see next week, that's one of the first signs of a person who's qualified to becoming an elder. As one man said to me many years ago when I asked him about that, he said, Glenn, it's pretty simple. It's, it's a man who's already seen to be doing the work of an elder. It's noticeable by the church. Verses 9 and 10. Ladies, it's your turn. Paul goes on and says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So, so let's maybe focus on what Paul is saying first and not, and, and not what he's not saying. We'll get to that because that's important. So what is he saying overall? It's right there in the middle of the verses. It's right there. He's basically saying this. Women, it's about modesty and self-control. That is what counts. So it's interesting, this is, this is not a counter, but this is likewise. So for the men, it's like this. For you ladies, it's like this. So then it, it's about a posture, isn't it? It's about a posture. Um, I, I'm grateful. I was thinking about this before I get up in front of most of you here today, that I, I, know, I, I know most of you get this. Right? I, I, I know you do, because like, I was raised Catholic, and I'm not being critical or anything, but I remember back in the day uh, when I'd go to Blessed Sacrament Church in downtown Toronto where we lived, and uh, if it was Easter Sunday, oh boy, the ladies had the hats on. And, and some of them had fruit that went up about this high. Okay? It was, I think, a competition. It was distracting, to be honest with you. It was a bit distracting. So look, let's also be honest. Let's also be honest. Uh, getting dolled up may not be as in vogue in our day and age today as it used to be, except maybe on date nights. But the truth is, the truth is, at least I'm speaking as a man, uh, most women I know when they give their attention to it can make themselves rather attractive. There's a time and a place for that. There is. Paul's saying that's, that's not at the gathering of the church. But he's also not saying, well, therefore you need to dress frumpy. Right? And guys, you don't need to dress with you know, 
tank tops or whatever. But actually, that's not men. They would those, never mind. That, those weird kind of T-shirts that some guys wear, whatever. So there's a time that Paul is saying that the gathering of the church is more important than men and women be inwardly prepared for worship and not outwardly showy. So let me also be very clear here. I've heard this. I, 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 I hope I've never done this or given this impression. But I, I have actually heard and seen these verses over the past 30, 40 years used by pastors and preachers and churches and authors to um, yeah, spend far too much time denouncing certain forms of women's apparel in a very negative way, in fact. That, that's not what Paul is doing here. That's not what Paul is doing here. Uh, he's not saying, women, you, you, you don't braid your hair. He's not saying, women, don't uh, uh, wear gold or pearls or fancy clothes. He's kind, of, he's kind of saying, when it comes to the gathering church, it's about this package, which is appropriate in certain settings, but maybe not in the church. And in that day in Ephesus, just from a cultural perspective, there were two forms of this kind of dress. One was wealthy women. Wealthy women could do this. And Paul was saying, no, listen, we, we also have women in this church who don't have the wherewithal to dress like you, okay? But second of all, there were women in that community who dolled up to be attractive to men who weren't their husbands too, right? I think it has more to do with the first angle than this. And so lastly on this, I'm just going to say this. Parents, moms, this is up to you. It's important. It really is, but it's up to you, together with your husbands, to guide and disciple your daughters well. Young women in the church, it's a good idea to disciple the other young women in the church in this way. We live, and you all know this, I don't have to highlight it, in an incredibly sexualized culture. And that sexualization is focused on specifically young women. It really, really is. And so this conversation needs to take place. If you're married here today, this is a conversation between you and your husband about how you should dress. Um, Janice and I will be married this December 45 years. Unbelievable that she stayed with me. We've had this conversation. And believe it or not, on a couple of occasions, she said to me, I don't want you going out dressed like that. I know, I was, that's not true, but anyway. It's an important conversation. All right, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Hands up if you're a woman here today and you love that word submissiveness. <laughs> I have one candidate. Okay, good. <sighs> I have to preach to the rest. Okay. So from my perspective, come on. These next two verses become the most contentious and misunderstood at the same time, I want to suggest to you. Out of the whole letter out of the whole letter. I think the tendency for most women that I've experienced over the years is especially to jump past one word and directly to quiet or silent in some translations and, of course, the word submissiveness and ask, what in the world is with that? It's, it's a fair question. So we're going to get to that, but let's start with this. The key word is learn. That's, that's the key word here. And again, we, we've been over this just a little bit. The inclusion of women in the church equally with men was already an upgrade in that culture. Now, I know today, listen, the, me calling that an upgrade is like, come on. It's got to be better than that. Of course it is. 
But that was, in that day and age, an upgrade for women in that culture. So women were encouraged there in that church uh, to learn, and that was even more so in that culture. And again, because, and this is sad, but I think it can exist in our world today, both in Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures, there was a blatant chauvinism. Blatant. Just read your history. It was blatant. The belief, even in the Jewish faith, but particularly in the Greco-Roman was, women didn't have the mental capacity to learn like men. That's chauvinism. It's clearly wrong. It went even so far as to suggest that they were unstable. Um, And that was in relation to certain Jewish sects. So Paul's words here are a help. Listen, I think they're a help to Timothy because here's also what I may be thinking. Maybe when he was talking about in in chapter 1, Timothy, there are false teachers, these Judaizers who are trying to lead people astray and call into questions the things and the gospel and the teachings. Maybe one of the things that they were doing was trying to influence Timothy related to women's even ability or encouragement to learn, to learn. Alongside also, by the way, the men in the congregation right now who are not doing what I'm doing. Don't forget that. It's an important parallel. So silence or quietness, then, I want to suggest to you is simply this. It's a clearer expression of the principle of submission that Paul is declaring here. It's incredible, these words, these two verses, verses 11 and 12. There is a precision in his words, and there's also, which are spectacular. However, there's also a brevity, and I think the brevity can make us just, we've got to get past this. we not only got to get past this, we've got to deconstruct this. So it's beautiful. If Paul had said simply this, a woman should learn in full submission, well, then the question someone would ask, and it would be a fair question, is, well, Paul, what does full submission mean and look like? Paul would answer, well, she should learn in silence. That, that's, that's submission. That's modeling it. Easy, right? No. Paul understands. So understanding that in this context, it is that she is not to be a teacher. She is to be a learner in the church gathering. And then Paul makes it even clearer in verse 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet or silent. Again, the the brevity is punctuated by precision. He does not say that women cannot teach a man. Let's be clear here. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that a, a, a woman can't teach a man mathematics. Right? Some church sects get right out of control with this, don't they? And, and that ruins, actually, what a pastor like myself and a church like ourselves are trying to actually show. It, it doesn't mean that a woman can't teach history to a man or philosophy or, listen, fly fishing or golf. No. No, that, that's not what it means. I've heard men in the church argue that women should not be teaching theology at biblical seminaries. I, I don't personally agree with that. That's not a gathering of the church. I sat under the teaching of one woman professor, and I quote Nancy Piercy all the time, who's a professor in a theological university, and she's awesome. But Nancy would also not do this on a Sunday morning in her church, just as you might want to know. 
And so it's a beautiful thing. So Paul's reason for writing this letter to, to, to Timothy is because of what he says in chapter 3, verse uh, 15, and we've read it before. It won't be on screen. It's just how one ought to, how men and women ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So this is about teaching the Bible to a man in the context of the gathering of the church. That's very important. It's the teaching in the church where both sexes are together, which is a male function, I believe, we believe, in the true reading of this, this text, and it is the exercising of spiritual authority. We, we hear that word authority. I've heard that. Listen, I was a rebel when I was a teenager, okay? Long hair, hippie, all the rest. I was a rebel. Authority? Forget it. In the church, we, we don't understand that, that, that word. It's not about overbearing authoritarian. It comes from the root word author. God is the author of life. He's the author of these words. And so the authority that is given to me on a Sunday morning is his authority to expound his word authoritatively. So that's a good understanding, I think, of what this means. So at, some, at this point, some are going to argue, this is an argument that I, I've heard many times and I understand. Those who do not want to believe or say that what this text is actually saying they, they would suggest that Paul was dealing with a cultural issue, something for that day, and that if he were around today, he wouldn't say something like this at all. He certainly wouldn't get up on a soapbox at the Cumberland Market and read this. Well, that's not the case. Honestly, I've been teaching this for 30 years. I wish it was the case. Because <laughs> it's getting more difficult as decades go on to teach this. No, the, the truth is, and here's what we're going to see, Paul, if he had stopped there, that would have been one thing. But, but he doesn't. He, he argues or makes his point clearly from Scripture. So if a person in that day or even today was to say, Paul, where do you get this idea from Scripture of what you just said, that oh, do not permit a woman, that it's up to a man to do this, where do you get this from Scripture, Paul? Well, Paul said in verse 13, well, Adam was formed first. Then Eve. The, the word for is because. You're asking me the question, why am I saying this? Why, why am I teaching this to you? Why do I suggest this for the church? Why is this good for the church? Because Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. We're going to get to some of this. <laughs> no, really, because I know how it sounds, okay? So once again, Paul is saying that a woman cannot teach or exercise authority over a man because why? Because God decided, would, decided it would be so when he created Adam first, then Eve, and listen, in that order, and listen, before the fall. It's critically important. It's before the fall. So for some of us, this is going to need further details, and we'll get there. But also, let's be careful about this. If what many are doing today, which really saddens me, but if what many are doing today is looking at Genesis 1 to 3 and saying, no, you know what? Yeah, we, we, we're 2,000 years out from the cross, and yes, and all the rest of it. And we, we've, you know, we've studied this matter really well. Genesis 1 to 3, myth, allegory, maybe not literal. Friends, th- this, this is a, that would be a good reason why we're at where we're at today with human sexuality, right? But if that were true, then what Paul says here in 1 Timothy could also be rejected, correct? No. It can't be. And so that's actually why Paul points to this. It's really an important thing that he does here. He's getting actually, uh, he's actually in very good company too, isn't he? This won't be on screen, but you remember when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees about divorce? 
They were like, well, you know, didn't Moses say in the law we can get rid of our wives whenever we want? Jesus, guys, you know, okay, the letter of the law, guys, you know, but hardness of your hearts. Jesus said these words, have you not read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus directly quoting Genesis 2.24 as what? Myth? No. As literal history, as truth. So he's in, he's in really good company. So how does Paul appeal to the order in creation? How does that settle this issue for us, you're asking? Those are the details. Genesis reveals this. Genesis 1 reveals this to us about God, that in everything that he designs... From day one, there is order to his creation. There's order in everything that he does. When Adam was formed out of the ground, he spent some time alone, we read in chapter 2, naming the animals and discovering that there was no one like him, but also there was no one like him but different than him. Because he'd seen that with all of the animals that had been coming forward in pairs, male and female, towards him, and he named them. And so God then put Adam to sleep, we read, took a rib from his side, made Eve to be four him and with him to help him fulfill their collective mandate to have dominion and to go forth and to multiply on this earth. He, Adam, once God brings Eve to her, calls her what? Woo-man. Woman. Because she is out of man. It's such a beautiful and wonderful picture. But listen, this wasn't Adam's idea. It wasn't my idea. It's God's idea. And so it's a good idea, and it's a beautiful idea. So from the beginning, it's clear that they were, listen, and we know this, fully equal in value and worth as image bearers of God, yet different in complementary ways. And one of those ways is how they are to relate to one another, both then and now. On that day, after God had created Adam and Eve, he said, now this is very good. This is very good. And it was. Then, tragedy struck. The devil, who's been watching all this, God create the heavens and the earth, Adam and Eve, he's been watching all this. He knows who God is. He's been in his very presence. He rebelled against God. He knows all this. He knows full well that especially in the Godhead, listen, there is complete equality, submissiveness, and different roles in the way that God the Son and the Holy Spirit relate to the Father and one to other, but they're fully equal, fully submissive, and they have different roles. So he, Satan, looks at this, and he knows exactly what to do. He goes after the woman. He goes after Eve. He encourages her to step out from under her husband, who's, who's supposed to be there to care for her and, and protect her. And she takes the lead role in the fatal discussion at that time. So let's be also very clear here, guys. This is a wake-up call for all of us. Adam was right there beside her. He was standing right there beside her, and, and he knew better, but he didn't act. He did not step up and go, hold on, hold on. Hey, you, you didn't do it. And, and that's what can happen in our world today is as men, sometimes we can, we can step back and, and not play the role that God has called us to play. It's really, really important that we do that. 
So let's be clear, Adam's right there beside her and he does nothing. He abdicates his responsibility and his role. It's been downhill since that time for humanity and especially for marriage relationships. Look, I grew up in the 60s and 70s and and I, I heard them all start talking about, you know, that's when the battle of the sexes began. Modern day it did, but I'm going to tell you right now, it happened 6,400 years ago, approximately, in the garden. That's where, it, that's where it started, right there. And so Paul ties it all together when he adds these words. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So if there's any doubt that what Paul's commanding for our roles in the church exist, he points to the consequences for both Adam and Eve's sin against God. After the, again, if you've read the Genesis story, you know that after they eat of the fruit, they all of a sudden realize that they're naked. It was okay before that, but all of a sudden they realize that, and then they hear God coming, and they run and hide, as if you can do that. And God calls out, he goes, Adam, where are you? He goes looking for Adam. Eve took the fruit first. But he goes looking for Adam. He's holding Adam accountable for what's happened here. And he asks her, what have you done? Well, after lamely responding, hey, it it was the woman. (laughs) She made me do it. The one that you gave to me? Yeah, she made me do this. It's pretty lame. It wasn't a good day for Adam. Man, it's not a good day for us when we blame our women. So this is, uh, yeah, it's really not a good day. After that, we read that God says what the consequences will be for the rebellion and fall into sin, starting with Eve. And that's what Paul points to in 1 Timothy. It says in God speaking in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Newsflash. Before the fall, it wasn't supposed to be painful. That's... It's amazing how God's word is. So in pain, you shall bring forth children. Here's the key part. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. So first there's the reference to childbearing, but the key, as I said, is these words. Your desire shall be for your husband. Listen, this desire in the Hebrew here does not mean the kind of desire that you have when you're out on a Friday night having a date with your husband and you're looking across or the guy you're dating and you're looking across at him and you're thinking he's looking pretty good. It's not that kind of desire. Not at all. Go forward to Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Same Hebrew word is used, and it's the desire that Satan has to murder. And puts that into the heart of one of the sons of Adam and Eve. And you know that story. And so this is, this is a desire literally to master and control. And so the result of the fall will be that the woman will continually attempt to step out of the order that God has created and want control over her man. Sadly, the man will have the tendency to dominate and rule over his wife, over the woman that he is supposed to be a loving provider for and and a sacrificial leader to. Have any of you been involved in marriage counseling? I don't mean as the counselees, but as a counselor. Janice and I have been for years, and I can tell you right now, this is what works out constantly in marriages. It's the fall. We're broken when we behave this way. Hopefully, we can come to learn that, and we can see that this is, this is not good. This is not the way God intended it. So let me conclude, because some of you are going, yes, please, with this. 
This would be a rather sad conclusion if we stopped here, wouldn't it? It would be really sad. But thankfully, we don't have to. In the very previous verse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the good news God promised in that verse is that one day, a very special woman would birth a child who would crush the head of the serpent, of the devil. And that promise was fulfilled, and he did. Amen? He sent Jesus to break the curse, provide us with forgiveness for our sins, make us new creations, and with the Holy Spirit's power, begin the process of restoring healthy and right relationships in our marriages, in our homes, in our families, and in the church. The challenge for you and I here today, men and yes, ladies, is this. Will we trust the clear and simple reading of God's word? Will we trust it? Will we actually maybe, for some of us here today, for the first time, give it a legitimate try? That's what I'm hoping the Holy Spirit will put on all of our hearts this morning. Pray with me, would you? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, what you're doing in our midst. I do thank you, Lord, for this text. Um, And I thank you that... um, yeah, you've made it possible, and quite frankly, you made it, uh, well, you made it what it is, and that is that I would be the one who would be delivering this today. And so, a lot of, I, I love your word. I know that our church family, we love your word, Lord. There are many passages, many things that I read that I really struggle with. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone here today who struggles with this. I, I, I do. I pray for, Lord, for the men in our church that we would recognize the huge responsibility there is therefore on us to be the, God, the kind of godly men that you've called us to be, the kind of men that Adam was supposed to be today in our relationships with other women, in our relationships in marriages, in the family, and in the church. So, Lord, thank you so much for what you're going to do. I pray your blessings over us as we continue now with communion and in worship as we close today. In your worthy name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.